It's history. It's one small step for man. It's hardcore history. At the end of the last Hardcore History episode, we told you that we were going to start to expand the offerings that we provide for you folks. And we assured you that this wasn't going to be in place of the stuff you already like. It was going to be in addition to the stuff you already like. And there were two reasons why we had to do this. One was, it was taking too darn long to get episodes out to you. The last show took about 57 days or something to get to you, and that's way too long. So we wanted to be able to get you more stuff than we get you now. The other reason I didn't really go into much in that little segment in the last show, but it has to do with my own personal limitations. One of the things I always try to make clear to you folks is that I'm not a history teacher. I'm a history fan. And I think that that accounts for a lot of what people like about this program is that by not being an academic with a reputation to be concerned with, I can travel far and wide around these issues in ways that might not make a traditional professor that comfortable. That's a double-edged sword, I think, for some listeners, but it's part of what we do here. And yet I get emails from you folks, fantastic emails, complimenting us on the show and all that, but also suggesting topics. And we've had easily over 2,000 topics suggested to us on this program, and there may be 200 of them I could talk about with half of a brain. What you people think I'm capable of is flattering and at the same time very revealing because I know my limitations and I can't give you the sorts of subjects many of you want. That's another reason we have to add new elements to the show because we feel like we can provide you with this info. I'm just not sure I can be the one who gives it to you all the time. You ought to see some of the emails. I got one that said, Dan, can you please discuss ancient Mesoamerican Toltec religious beliefs and how that plays into things going on in the Middle East today? Or, Dan, can you please explain ancient Chinese rice harvesting practices and how the corresponding increase in food yields led to larger populations that influenced the whole Southeast Asia? You know, it goes on and on. I laugh sometimes at what you people think I'm capable of. It's flattering and, well, sometimes a little embarrassing at the same time. As I said to my producer, these people don't want me. They want someone like James Burke. Heck, I want James Burke. I'm a James Burke fan. If you don't know who James Burke is, he's a, I believe his title is a, a historian of science and technology. He did the Wonderful Connections series on public broadcasting. Connections 1, Connections 2, Connections 3. He did The Day the Universe Changed, which is what I think one of the best productions ever. I believe the Washington Post called him one of the most intriguing minds in the Western world. That's the guy you people think you want when you write me these emails. And there's a great line from a Clint Eastwood movie. He said once, a man's got to know his limitations. And I know my limitations. I'm no James Burke. But there may be a way around that problem. Hello? James Burke, please. That's me. <laughs> this is Dan Carlin. How are you? I imagined it was you. The first thing I wanted to bring up uh, was when I first started thinking about talking to you, I thought about that Chinese double-edged proverb, the one about may you live in interesting times. And I wanted to find out if you thought that 
we lived in interesting times. And if you thought that a thousand years from now, you know, the high school history students, would they be falling asleep when they're on the chapter about our day and age now? Or is this going to be an interesting time for future people to learn about? I think it's going to be, uh, first of all, I think we live in interesting times, possibly, I suppose, relatively speaking, it's easy for us to say this is the most interesting set of times of all time. But then we would say that, wouldn't we? Um, I suppose for people living at the time when the printing press came out, they felt just the same way. And back when cuneiform uh, play tablets happened, they felt the same way. I think a thousand years from now, (laughs) a thousand years, boy, you're really asking. A thousand years from now, I think people will look back like all historians and regard what we're doing with some wry amusement that we should have thought we'd have an interesting time. <laughs> well, well, and you know how history tends to compress once you get farther away from events. You know, four or five major events starts to make up an era to future historians. When I was in high school, they used to love to ask us questions like major themes. You would talk about what the major themes of the Civil War era were. What do you think they're going to say the major themes of our era are now once time gets compressed in the future? Transition. I think we're going to be looked back to as a from a thousand years ago as a very short course because it compresses period of transition in which our local and national and global societies went through a period of turmoil while we switched from what I'd like to call a culture of scarcity to what I hope we'll be calling a culture of abundance in most senses of the word. Um, And I think uh, this period of transition will probably be regarded, as I said, with wry amusement, that we should have found it so difficult to live through and maybe have made so many mistakes during the period of transition because we were trying to deal with a period of transition with archaic and out-of-date instruments. I mean, by that, that we live with institutions that were set up in the past to solve the problems of the past with the technology of the past and the values of the past. And we wonder why they don't work too well anymore. Um, As we move from a period, which is the whole of history for about 400,000 years back, where what was known was known only to a very few because what else could they do? They didn't have the technology to share it to a point where I think after this period of transition, what is known will be known to everyone. And what we're doing right now is fumbling our way through from one to the other. And I think that's how we will be seen by the future historians. Well, that brings me to an interesting point. I was reading an economic writer the other day that was talking about some of the uh, financial market turmoil going on right now. And he, he, he had a line that I thought could apply to pretty much all of recorded history where he said that we act like we know what's going on in this modern, complicated system we've put together, but we're starting to realize that it's more difficult and incomprehensible than we thought. And when he said that, I thought, isn't that the way it always seems? We always think in our age we've got a handle on things, only to find out in the future that we really didn't have a handle on things after a stock market crash happens or some unforeseen thing happens. Do we really have a handle on the complexity of our system right now, do you think? I think probably you're right, that each age has what it considers to be a handle on what's going on, and in few, in, after, after its past, it is in, regarded from its own future as having had less than a hand. On the other hand, I believe that information technology has brought us in the last uh, few decades to a point where perhaps we're making more progress in that direction, relatively speaking, than other eras have in the past, except perhaps for Gutenberg and the printing press, and except perhaps for 
the alphabet or cuneiform writing in uh, Mesopotamia to 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Um, I think it is always true and may always be true that we don't know what's going on, um, but that we think we do. And we have instruments that tell us we know, and we run our systems based on the fact that we have a pretty good handle and more or less we manage, we stumble along, uh, you know, the Fed drops the rate and to a certain extent, the, the economy behaves the way it's expected to behave because, of course, as you said yourself, the instruments we use are extremely crude. So at the sort of macro level, we see things happening more or less as we think we thought they ought to. What we don't see are the levels, uh, the more subtle levels at which perhaps the effects are either less immediately visible, less easily understood on the front page of a newspaper or, or more likely to have an outcome down the road a little. Uh, in which case then by that time, of course, we don't know they are, they are late effects. We see them as something else. So, so in general, I think, no, we don't. I mean, I have a long, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy freak, but I have long believed that, we have the, that what we think is going on is nothing like what is going on. I'm talking about the way in which the political institutions work. I mean, I don't, I believe that, that realpolitik has always been what's happening, what's really happening, and the flack, the blah, blah, is what the rest of us believe is going on, and I think that's how the world works. It's um, all Bismarck. It, it's all Bismarck, and at any level this is true. I mean, you know, bosses of corporations don't reveal what they're really up to to every single member of the company because, first of all, it would, it would be just that they, they would cause chaos. Um, if everybody wanted to become involved in the decision that was being made, and also it would send out information to people who should not necessarily have that information, like like competition. I think this is true at all levels, most important of all, of course, at governmental levels. Well, you know what, you bring me, I just finished a lot of research on uh, ancient Assyria and that world, and I'm reading these historians who make it sound so positive. You know, I mean, if you if you read some of these guys, it's as though we know everything for sure that happened back 3,000 years ago. And you're pointing out that we may not even know everything that's going on now. I was also looking at stuff, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Anatoly Fomenko and his ideas of new chronologies and some of these people that suggest that even our whole dating system is wrong. And I thought I would ask you, you know, how much when you pick up an old history book or even a new history book and read about the past, how much of that do you buy and how much of it is Napoleon or Voltaire's line about history being a bunch of uh, myths we agree yeah, upon? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm with you entirely, and it's not just the biggies, not just Napoleon and Voltaire. I mean, I've recently been reading about the uh, Anglo-Saxon invasion of England uh, in the 4th, uh, 5th, 6th century, and the, the, there's a whole bunch that new historians are now saying, nah, nah, what that's all about is a Victorian view of the national identity, which was in crisis because of the social turmoil caused by the Industrial Revolution. And what everyone was trying to do was to set up this kind of clear Victorian sense of who we were, that's we Brits. And one of the ways... Like a, church, like a Churchill history. Like a Churchill history, exactly. And, and that in fact... If you look carefully at the evidence which was before them too, uh, in terms of what people had already found archaeologically, it becomes clear that there was no Anglo-Saxon invasion. The Anglo-Saxons did not rush ashore, uh, looting, pillaging, burning, blah, blah, and teaching everybody to speak Anglo-Saxon. There was a lot of trade. There were a lot of people, immigrants, who came 
piecemeal. They settled down, and you can see the way the things like the field shapes changed according to the way they did their agriculture. And the whole thing was much more peaceful and much less invading. But it was, it was, it was as you say, it was a Churchill kind of Whiggish history. It's a history written with messages, uh, you know, that shouldn't surprise us because you're a Victorian. You think in the Victorian box. And I think that is true of every piece of history that we look back at. We are now thinking in the 20, early 21st century transitional box. You, uh, you, you, you get me into a dark age question when you bring up the Saxon invasions, because I was going to ask you, one of the things I try to think about all the time is what makes us so different from our ancestors who lived through periods, you know, of, of great uh, rising of empires and, and good times only to fall into that bunny hop cycle of history, two steps forward, one step back. And I thought to myself, you know, no one around us now ever considers that there's going to be another dark age in the future. I think we all think we live in the final version of the world now. Do you think we've had our last dark age? I don't think there was ever a dark age. Um, I think the dark age is a misnomer. I mean, again, newer newer history newer historians are looking back at what happened in the so-called dark ages in Europe when in fact the place was far from dark um i mean there was bishop to bishop regular post um people, the, the roman roads did not fall into disuse because there were only savages around it's just that if you didn't have a roman marketplace or a roman fortress to go and look after there was no point in using the road life became rather rather local when the roman troops pulled out and went back to rome or wherever they went so i, I think the dark, the other thing to be said of course is that we've always lived in a dark age until about 50 years ago because the vast majority of the population was illiterate and indeed one might argue that it, to a certain extent those countries with large levels of illiteracy are still living in dark ages. So, you know, the dark age is a misnomer in the sense that for the people who had the knowledge, it wasn't dark at all. And for the people who didn't, they didn't know they didn't. I'm absorbing that because I was thinking, if not the dark ages that you were talking about, I was thinking of when the fall of the Bronze Age happened or any of these periods where, where at least the historians from the Churchillian period would have told us that we, we were declining in, in cultural levels. But you're right. Even when the dark ages supposedly were going on in Europe, the Arabs were having a golden age. So it depends on the perspective, I guess, you're coming from. That's right. And also, of course, one always has to remember that these massive things happened to half a dozen people because the rest of them had lives that were nasty, brutish, and short, and illiterate. And they were down in the mud, and, you know, whatever that was going on, nothing for them was going on. They got up in the morning, and they lived until they died from overwork, or a saber-toothed tiger got them, or whatever it was. And, and these massive world-shaking events happened to half a dozen people. See, I find that, a re I, you know, I had a few questions written down in places to go, but now you're getting me thinking in, in completely other directions. I like, I, like, no, I don't mind. Change the subject. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I mean, I mean, I mean it, it, it's better this way. Um, well, for example, if, if a certain percentage of people, let's just say, are gifted in human society, say, you know, two or three or five percent are the abnormally smart or, or the ones who are most inventive or what have you, if more people are taking part in society all the time, do we increase the level of inventive people that society can take advantage of or intelligent people or ambitious people? Do we have more of those factors at work today because more of the population is participating? Maybe that's an obvious question. Yes. I mean, it's an obvious question, and yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yes. I mean, one has to remember, I think, at all times, back to I don't know when, that every human being, every healthy human being, has about the same number of neurons in the skull, 100 billion. Each one of them has up to 50,000 connecting dendrites, each of which can be in contact with other connecting dendrites of the same, up to the same number, which means that inside the brain, a thought can go any one of 
a number of roots which are larger than the number of atoms in the known universe, and every body has one. Now, what I referred to earlier as a culture of scarcity is a situation which is obtained for most of history, and indeed, I think, to a certain extent, still obtains, that we don't have the tools to free up and use the talents of these massive brains that every single one of us has. And what's happening to us is, is what you referred to in your question just now, what's happening to us is gradually more and more people are getting their hands on the tools with which to express this wondrous thing inside their heads. Well, and that gets me to, to the project you're working on, because I always said that the Internet was real great from, from a, a radio talk show host standpoint because it cuts out the middleman. I don't need anyone's permission now to talk directly to the audience. No program directors, no consultants. Um, talk to me a little bit about this project you're heavily involved in, the Knowledge Web, and how this plays into the fact that we have an Internet now and that something like this is possible. Well, I'll be as brief as I can. Um, it's, a, it's a project, it's a common man project, if you like. It's a, it's a project aimed at making it easier for people to get their hands on the kind of tools and information that uh, will enable them to express their talents perhaps a little better than the uh, medieval educational system with which we live today, uh, where uh, to be intelligent you have to have a PhD, uh, and whose doors are, whose doors are extremely selective in terms of who can get there and who can get themselves this so-called uh, symbol of, proven symbol of intelligence called uh, higher, a higher degree. Um, the Knowledge Web essentially is a, a network. At the moment, it's in its infancy. I mean, I've built something which has, takes about 26 or 2700 people from history about equal between the arts and the sciences, and links them to each other the way we are all linked. Um, we know people, we marry people, we are influenced by people, we work with people, we fight people, all those things, all those um, factors that are involved in everybody's life in terms of who they know and who affects them in life and so on. So each of these people, um, I mean, I've kept it down to a minimum, but each of these people is on average linked about to about 10 others. I mean, obviously, people like Newton much bigger, and people like Ehrenberg are much smaller. Uh, and the reason you're going to say who is that's why, because it's much smaller. Uh, so all in all, these 26, 2,700 people are interlinked about 30,000 ways. And the name of the game is to take trips down these connective pathways so that you go from, from let's say, from, start with Mozart and see where you go. Well, one of the things about the, the web is what I'm trying to do is to say to people, look, all this stuff about uh, learning all there is to know about chemistry so you become a chemist or a physicist or a musicologist or a physiotherapist or an archaeologist is all uh, a plot to make life easier for teachers. Uh, in other words, you divide knowledge up into neat boxes and it makes it easier for teachers to grade because uh, what happens is you set us, you give us set, give a set of questions to a student, and they have one correct answer, and that's nice and easy to grade. I mean, Charles II did what Charles II did, and nothing else. And if you get it right, you pass the exam, and you get yourself whatever it is you're going to get yourself. And this is an anarchic approach. It says that's not how history happens, that's not how life happens, that's not how knowledge happens. It is all immensely interconnected. This is the link with the internet and with the way things are going in general. And that if, if you start on a journey from anywhere to anywhere on this net, you're going to very rapidly see that you pass in and out of many different disciplines, many different uh, aspects of living, many different subjects. 
rather than so for example you take let's say Mozart take Mozart you start thinking about Mozart in school if you're doing that you're in a class about music or the history of music or some aspect of music taught by a music teacher or a musicologist so here we go say Mozart steals the idea for the marriage of Figaro from a fifth-rate sorry French people listening uh, from a fifth-rate French uh, playwright called Caron de Beaumarchais unknown to anybody outside France except for the fact that he was the guy who laundered the money across the United States to help you people win the war of independence against us without which of course you would not have won this means that this guy Beaumarchais is a big pal of Jefferson now Jefferson being a liberal gent is influenced by the writings of a small, meek little man in Milan called Cesare Beccaria. And his big thing is that he's the first guy who say, whoever says, why do we put people in prison? What's prison for? Is it to punish people or is it to rehabilitate them? And above all, if somebody commits a murder, why do we commit a murder uh, to, to, to deal with it? In other words, why does the state kill? And Jefferson goes for this, and as I'm sure you know, he fails only by one vote to get capital punishment taken off the books in Virginia. However, Beccaria. Beccaria, in turn, is influenced by two crazy guys from Austria called Gaal and Spurzheim, and they invent phrenology. Phrenology is reading the bumps on your head. My favorite science. <laughs> the theory being that a person has all kinds of characteristics. You know, they have... Uh, uh, greed, they have uh, tenderness, they have intelligence, whatever it is, and each of these characteristics has a part of a brain which is either well or not developed. If it's well developed, it causes a bump in the skull above the organ of greed, happiness, or whatever. So if you run your hands over a person's skull, you can read these bumps and read their character. Now, for social reformers, this is important because if you can read that somebody has a growing but small bump of criminality, you could say this guy could be a criminal unless we try to persuade him not to be. So it's a matter of social reform. One of these social reformers is called Follen in Germany, and he gets in trouble for his social reform views and is hauled up before a judge called E.T.A. Hoffman, whose um, spare time job is writing the first of the creepy stories, you know, the, the, the dead come out of the graves at night and suck your blood and then go back to their graves before dawn. This goes over like gangbusters with... Uh, um, Edgar Allan Poe, who writes much of the same, and one of his uh, more creepy stories is picked up by Rachmaninoff as a theme for one of his works, and Rachmaninoff is at a party in Long Island one day and meets another Russian emigre who really impresses him and gives this guy 5,000 bucks, a lot of money back then, enough to set up what uh, Sikorsky needs to develop the first functioning helicopter. So, Mozart to the helicopter in 10 easy jumps, and n not one repeat of music. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, Rachmaninoff. However, you see what I'm saying. Um, and what this does, I hope, is encourage people to take journeys in this crazy way and learn themselves to think the same way. And then I hope go away and make their own maps of themselves, their community, their friends, their classmates, their town. And one day, who knows when electronic agents replace the present outdated political institutions one day to make maps of the interconnectedness of our country with, our, with other countries, our culture with other cultures and such stuff. Well, listen, you bring up an important point. When you were talking about the archaicness of our education system, it made me think about 
you know, the subject we're talking about here. I'm a history fan. My brain works in a historical fashion, and it's hard for me to imagine how other people organized their thinking. You know, obviously, it's hard for anyone to imagine how someone else organizes their thinking. But I think about mm-hmm. how it's- much our culture is losing by not having more of a historical focus, especially here in the United States. It's not perceived to have any economic value. It won't help you in your future job unless you're going to work in a museum. In your mind, what does a society or what do we as individuals miss when we don't know more about the past? Well, I have a glib phrase which I will offer you. We only know where you're going if you know where you've been. Uh, Any navigator will tell you that. And I think a historical perspective gives you a handle on how to evaluate the future, how to assess where it is you think you ought to be going, the kinds of things you ought to be doing if you want whatever it is you want in the future. And I think uh, an awareness of of history Somebody once said uh, history repeats itself. I don't think it does. I think people repeat themselves. And so you can look at history and see people making mistakes for the same kinds of reasons. And you can say, I can, I can, I can, I can see why that person made that decision. And I can see why it was wrong at the time. And that gives you a better handle on the kind of decision making you were involved in yourself. Because what the study of history tells you is how to recognize the limitations of the box you're in at any time in your own life. And that's, if there is one major activity I would like education to do, which it doesn't, is to teach us all how to recognize that we are in a box. Well, you bring up now, see, you know, you're going everywhere I was going to go with the questions. For example, I was going to talk to you about the validity of historical comparisons over time. Here in the U.S., mm. it's popular to say things like, well, we are looking a lot like Imperial Rome or Rome at one point. And you sit there and say, OK, well, how useful is a comparison like that? Or how much are we different from Rome in ways that would make such a comparison invalid? How much stock do you put in such comparisons? Uh, a bit, a bit. I mean, I think though possibly not what those people mean when they say that. I think if you were to say uh, it's important to study what happened to Rome so that you recognize the danger of what might happen to the American empire. On the other hand, if you dissect that statement, you recognize that Rome is in one out of 27 zillion ways similar to the United States of America, and in 27 zillion ways minus one, not like modern America. So what, what are we looking at? We're looking at the possibility that America might be an empire which might fall into decline. On the other hand, is it? And then if you look at the differences between what Rome was going through and what America is, you begin to see the ways in which America is not an empire. On the other hand, you may be given clues about the tiny bits of information that you glean about what America is today that might tell you something that relates to why some fundamental mistakes were made by Rome. I mean, for example, for example, um, because this is, this is almost too crude to say, but I'll say it. I mean, one of the ways, one of the arguments about Rome is it taxed itself to death. Um, that it went out there to Hadrian's Wall and all the other places it went out there and more and more and more the wealth became concentrated in Rome and more and more and more the, the burden of taxation simply became too colossal and the empire, the empire collapsed beneath it. Well, there is one tiny lesson to be learned there and that is that you really need to be sure at all times of the reason why you're taxing and the reason why you're spending the money you are. I mean, if nobody ever thought about making major mistakes with taxation, nobody would ever say, are we spending money in Iraq the right way? 
just throw in a small controversial point. Well, this brings me to another subject. You know, I think it's tempting for people like myself, who admire people from the past, to hope for people in the future to arise that match some of the qualities of the people from the past. You know, it's a, I like to call it a Superman philosophy, where you're sitting there thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be great if another so-and-so showed up on the planet? We could really use someone like that now. If James Burke were going to say, you know, in your fantasies, we need another somebody right now, who would you say we need another of? Everybody. The the heroes of the past are heroes only because, I go back to my culture of scarcity, there was a small, tiny number of people. Like, everything we have achieved is down to less than 1% of anybody, of the number of people living at any one time. Now, that doesn't mean they were geniuses. That means they had their hands on the technology. They had their hands on the means to express themselves. And what they said, in our terms, was pretty simple. Of course it was. I mean, we know so much more than they did, but for them, it was colossal. Um, So I I, I don't want any more Napoleons. I don't want any more Newtons. I mean, in the sense that what I'm keener on is saying, let's, let's begin to tap, and I repeat myself here, let's begin to tap the astronomical incomprehensible amount of talent in the brains of the six billion people on this planet, compared with which Newton is a match in the dark at 100 miles. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I want to talk about something uh, that you discussed in a book you co-authored called The Axe Maker's Gift. Oops. Well, no, I enjoyed that immensely, and, and it got me thinking forever about the Greek idea of a built-in tragic flaw, which I guess is kind of the point of the book. Um, and I wanted to ask you about being trapped by our history a little bit. You know, my, my kids are born into this world that is not of their making, and are inheriting problems and challenges that are not of their doing, as I guess every generation does. And it got me thinking a little bit about, and this gets to the day the universe changed a little bit, about what you can do in terms of stopping bad developments you see happening in terms of inventiveness. For example, as I said, I was doing a show on Assyria the other day, and it got me thinking, if we had just stayed in the Bronze Age, (laughs) hadn't developed beyond a certain point, would human beings and civilization be sustainable at that level, or are you already into the realm of unsustainability, or are we just unsustainable now because we figured out ways to, you know, decrease the Malthusian repercussions of things like population and whatnot? I, I suppose. Do we have a built-in tragic flaw? I well, guess is what I suppose no. I don't think we have a built-in tragic flaw. I think what you're looking back, you're looking back with modern eyes. Uh, uh, what I think happens is that at any time in history, until about fifty or a hundred years ago, we lived in an empty world. We lived in a world where there were, first of all, the population was small anyway, but of that population who were, as it were, expressing themselves and doing things as opposed to. Uh, you know, being uh, loutish peasants, um, get up, eat, sleep, die. Uh, the very small number of people with their hands on the levers of power or the access to knowledge would naturally have had a feeling that was rife, was powerful in America, even only 150 years ago, that there's plenty more where that came from. Because there was. I mean, when the population of England was one and a half million, and the people who had access to knowledge and resources and the technology to, to use those resources to benefit them was something like 25,000. There was plenty more where that came from. And when was it, I forget, Daniel Boone crossed the mountains and came back and said, you aren't going to believe what's there. It doesn't stop forever. I mean, 
you know, no wonder America is the way she is because until very recently, there was plenty more where that came from. Now, we have this attitude of overconsumption in the Western paradigm because of honest historical reasons. Up until very recently, there was plenty more where that came from. And you can't blame people for looking out and seeing tons of food falling off the trees and thinking, hey, there's tons of food falling off the trees. But you can think about it, if you think about history, you can think about it in the sense that you become aware that that's what happened and that the situation has now, because of that, begun to change to a situation where we might want to think twice about that kind of attitude. You know, this brings me back to a, a different point, which had to do with what we're evolved to handle. As I said, I was doing a show on the um, what I like to call the very, very old world recently, the whole Mesopotamian urban first development. And it got me wondering about all of the modern problems we see around us today with so much of the population seemingly having a hard time coping. We have drug abuse. We have all these other things. And I was wondering if we're really evolutionarily ready for urban civilizations, or are we more still geared towards small clans and tribal societies? Are we ready for the kind of world we've created around ourselves in a relatively short period of time? Oh, yes. I mean, think of the brain that I described. I mean, that brain is far more than capable of handling these relatively unimportant changes from Stone Age to landing on the moon. I mean, that's nothing for the brain. It seems to me that the problems you describe of drug taking and the complexity of our lives and blah, 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 are all aspects of what I described earlier as the transitional phase through which we're going. I mean, I know that, that at all times in the past, any generation would have said the place is going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you know, when, when there was a lovely quote from somebody, some bishop, when Gutenberg's printing press came out, he said, printing will make reading the infatuation of people who have no business reading. I mean, harumph. And we've, all, <laughs> we've always had this harumph view. I think what, what's happening at the moment is that what's failing is not the fact that we are not evolutionarily developed enough to handle the complexity of modern living, but that our institutions are not evolutionarily developed enough to handle. You know, we are living, we are running, we are running a, a Ferrari with a, with a buggy whip. Well, and I think there's an assumption built in, you know, when I talk to folks about the the past, I think there's an assumption that we're so much more clever than we used to be and that, that the world around us proves it. And what I always say, and this could be wrong, but what I always tell them is I think our ancestors are just as clever as we are. They just don't have the ability to build on the knowledge of earlier people before them and all that sort of thing. Um, am I right in saying that the early peoples were as clever as we are individually? Oh, I think so. I think uh, I think any peasant from the 7th century could have walked down a street, walked down a road in the countryside and told you a thousand things about what was there that would affect his life. And you would probably only notice the smell of horse manure. Yes, I read a book once on the uh, the last, they, they had found one of the last Native Americans from a tribe in about 1900, a guy named Ishii, and they took him around and he showed the uh, the, archeo the modern archaeologists and anthropologists how he went through his daily life, and the number of things from tracking to knowing which plants were good for medicine to all these things astounded the modern folks because we just didn't think that there was that level of complexity in early yeah, peoples. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I think, I thought all my life what a tragedy it was that we bumped into the Stone Age in mainly the 18th and 19th centuries, when our, our values uh, gave us to, what's that famous phrase in America, the only Indian, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. We lost our last chance to interface directly with the Stone Age and find out what our beginnings were uh, in such a short period of time 
with all the indigenous populations that we took over and either massacred or, or drove to drink. I, I read an interesting book recently also, one that, that is trying to show us what history before writing is like based on mapping the human genome and whatnot. Do you find that stuff interesting when they go back and say, okay, we can tell where language must have cropped up based on the genes? And, and, and uh, do you see a lot more stuff down the road in terms of us finding out a bunch of other things about before written history about our own history? Oh, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I found it spine tingling the day I read about what that these these terms were not used because it was a serious uh, geneticist talking. But essentially what the geneticist was saying was at some point about a hundred and something thousand years ago, a bunch of people came north out of Africa across what is now the sea near Israel and then split. And some of them went east and some of them went west and we know this from the genetic uh, structure uh, of the genome. Uh, we know they split round about then, and that's when our ancestors went east and west. And those people never met again uh, until until Europeans discovered discovered America. They met the so-called Red Indians, who were actually originally from Siberia, coming the other way from that original parting of the ways on a plain, which is now under the sea off the coast of Israel. So, yes, I mean, I think that's going to start telling us enormously important things about pre, pre-writing history. Well, pre-history, as it's called. Hold on here, just shuffling some papers. Um, well, this is one of those things where I told Ben it's a little bit of hero worship here because if you listen to my history show, and I, and I didn't think about this till after I first called you, there are really rip-off elements of what you've done all your life, and I said that's a little bit of the whole influential thing. Bad caricatures of old James Burke things. Oh, um, listen, listen, I have to tell you, what, what, it's, very, <laughs> it's very important because I do, everyone does the same thing. I'll never forget the day I started doing, when I first did Connections, and the first time I had the idea, I really got the idea from reading a footnote in a, in a book by an American professor of medieval history who claimed that the arrival of the stirrup in medieval Europe had directly affected the creation of feudal society. Uh, in a nutshell, what he said was, the stirrup allows you to stay on a horse so you can hit the enemy with your lance and not get pushed off the back. Therefore, you're hitting him with the whole weight of a horse. Therefore, you know, you're going to cream them. And the heavier you are, the more you're going to cream them. So you you get very big horses. Then the guy coming the other way does the same thing. And how do you protect yourself? Well, you use metal, you use armor. And uh, then the most important thing for kings to do is to have as many of these guys as possible, for which you need many, many horses. You expropriate land from the church. You raise these very big horses. You call the guys in charge dukes, and away you go. So I thought this was wonderful. So I called this professor. I was, you know, like a kid, and here's this amazing august person. And I said, Professor... Uh, you don't know me, why should you? But I, I read something in one of your books, and I would like to use the idea. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I want to use that connective thought to create something which is a, a kind of totally connective view of history. And I wonder if you mind if I use your idea as a basis. And he said, I stole it, you steal it. And I said, <laughs> I said, you stole it? And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, young man, you don't think we're born with ideas, do you? That's wonderful. We all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? That's that's it, and they're all bigger than me, right? <laughs> Let me ask a little bit about how we get trapped in our history a little bit more. I was looking at the Middle East situation. You know, they were having another one of those wonderful but meaningless 
peace seminars over here in Maryland uh, between the various arguing parties, and you listen to the points of view of the arguing parties in the Middle East, and they'll hearken back to events that most, I mean, that, that predate America by, you know, exponential factors in time, and you say to yourself, are these people trapped by their history, or are they doing a little something like what some of the Balkan peoples are doing now? You know, we are Macedonian, and we're related to Alexander the Great, therefore we should be able to have this little piece of land, because that's traditional land. How much are the people who use, you know, thousands of year old histories in our modern culture, um, well, I guess, are they accurate? Are they doing something that's valid? Or do you turn around and say, listen, that is so long ago, that has no bearing on anything anymore? How relevant are, are things from the deep, dark past? Well, I suppose in general, I would, in response to that, I would say that that a sense of nationhood is extremely new. I mean, the nation state only comes into existence in, you know, the early 17th century. So people... To the, to the peace of Westphalia and all that. Yes, I mean, and so... So people who say, as somebody in your country did, my country rights or wrong, uh, uh, dulce et decorum pro patria mori, it is sweet to die for your own country. These are all these are all relatively modern ideas, and I suppose thinking uh, back, let's let's say, for example, the argument that that the Jews should have. Israel back again as their own country because it was theirs originally. Yes and no. I mean, yes, uh, it was at one point their own country. And no, because for many, many hundreds of years, it belonged to people we now call Palestinians. Um, if the same argument obtained, I suppose we ought to give Britain back to the Celts. Now, this is this is a fait accompli. There's no. I'm not arguing whether or not the state of Israel should exist. What I'm saying is the state of anything is a relatively modern concept, and I I think the interesting thing for me in this transition period we're going through is that I think information technology is going very soon to start to break that whole thing apart, as as information, as semi-intelligent information technology makes it more and more possible for smaller and smaller groups and communities to, to survive viably, economically and in every other way, it is going to become less and less necessary to band together in organizations as large as, uh, I don't know, England or, or uh, France or any other thing like that, and certainly not as big as the United States of America or uh, the European Union or the Federated States of, of Russia. And the, the pendulum, in a sense, not pendulum, sorry, the, yes, pendulum, the pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction. Uh, smaller and smaller entities are becoming viable. I mean, for example, as far as I know, the state of Kentucky has more uh, foreign relation activity going on in terms of trade than some European countries. Um, you know, the state of Kentucky, in that sense, could probably, if it had the technology to provide the necessary organizational infrastructures could probably survive uh, quite well without necessarily having to be part of the United States of America. And this is true of smaller and smaller communities as we look into the future of what information technology might do. So therefore, the argument of whether we are being trapped in the deep past when we talk about things like I'm a Macedonian, uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, but it's only short term and relative and it will pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because once upon a time you were just an Indo-European. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, that's a bit big for me. <laughs> um, listen, I'm about done here with my questions. I did want to kind of ask you, does J- and it's a simple, standard, you know, question. But does James Burke have a favorite period in history to read about and study? The future. <laughs> Any particular time in the future? One thousand years or ten? No, anything starting from tomorrow. I just, I just want to, I just want to bet on the right horse. The, the, we all want that. I just want to go back in the future and get that sports almanac from five years from now. Uh, oh yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Our thanks to James Burke for taking the time to do the interview with us. We had a blast. Hopefully, he enjoyed it too. Hopefully, you enjoyed it as well. A quick programming note here, by the way. The next Hardcore History offering you get from us will again be something different from the first 17 shows. It's an attempt to get you more stuff more quickly than we usually do. Then the Hardcore History offering after that show will be a return to the same thing we've done in the first 17 programs. I'm hoping that it won't be any longer of a wait to get a traditional Hardcore History show than it's ever been in the past. 45 or so days, 50 days, we ought to have another one of the shows that you're used to, that you know and love, as we say around here. And then in between those major offerings, we hope to get you more offerings like you heard today and like you're going to hear with the next show. The only way we're going to know whether this is working or not, though, is your feedback. Dan at dancarlin.com is the email address. Why don't you drop us a line? Let us know how it's working for you. Realize I can't get back to people like I used to, but I sure read everything. And um, as I said, shouldn't be too long if we've organized this new system correctly before you have a little something new to listen to. Until that time, stay safe, everyone. And, well, thanks for listening. Don't forget to vote for Hardcore History on PodcastAlley.com.